The overall series that we're in is about the end times. <laughs> you know that for sure if you've been uh, watching Thursology at all. And in our current mini-series, we've found that if you want to know the future of the world, you have to understand the future of Israel. And before we leave this topic, I want us to deal with an issue that we touched on before. It's the issue of Israel and the biblical doctrine of election. Back in Thursology session 39, you should go see 38 and 39 if you haven't, we established six facts about Israel. And so let's do a quick review of some of the biblical facts about the nation of Israel. We're not looking at all six, and it's just a super quick review. Here's, uh, here's your blank. Israel fact number three was this. The Jews are God's chosen people. Israel fact number four, and again, this was, we dealt with all kinds of scripture on each of these, these facts. These are biblical facts. Number four, the only savior of the world, the only savior the world will ever have is Israel's savior. Maybe you don't think that way because 99% of the Christians on the globe are not Jewish, but there it is. And we learned a fundamental messianic truth. This is your next blanks. It was through Israel and to Israel that the Savior of the world would come. Isn't that interesting? It was through Israel and to Israel that the Savior of the world would come. And then we learned the most stunning fact of all. Israel fact number six. Here's your blank. In the end, God will save the whole nation of Israel. Now, to the typical Christian, this sounds absurd. And because most believers don't understand God's irrevocable promises to Israel, I took two sessions to go through the supporting biblical text to show that this is what the Scripture, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, actually teaches. And here are the key concepts that we learned about how Israel will be saved. Here's key concept number one. Here's your blank. It's a long one, so I'll read it twice. Israel will be saved the only way that anyone is saved, through repentance and through trusting in the shed blood of the Savior who was pierced for our transgressions. Israel will be saved the only way anyone is saved, through repentance and through the trusting in the shed blood of the Savior who was pierced for our transgressions. You can see the references there, and again, go back to 38 and 39 sessions uh, if you want to see the unpacking of this from the scripture. And then key concept number two, here's your blank. By the end of the tribulation, by the end of the tribulation, finally, there will be a refined remnant. There will be a refined remnant of God's people, and they will all accept their Messiah. So now let's look at the timeline of the tribulation. It's in your notes tonight and show how this fits into God's plan to save Israel. You, we've uh, dealt with this. In fact, this is the one that I used last week because uh, we were talking about Noah and whether Noah looks pre-trib or post-trib. Uh, <coughs> we didn't deal with mid-trib at all last week, but um, here's the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. That's the view that people believe that before the seven years uh, uh, of tribulation, the church is taken out. And then the mid-trib, which happens at the abomination of desolation. Uh, this flows, as you can see, out of Daniel chapter 9, verse 27 in a verse, Matthew 24 in a chapter, and, and uh, Revelation in a book. Uh, and the peace treaty starts the three and a half years 
And during this time, Israel will believe that they have found their Messiah. The Antichrist, they will actually think, is the Christ. So during this time, Israel is going to be completely schnockered into believing that this person who will be revealed as the greatest assassin of followers of God and of Jewish people the world has ever known will not be revealed until the abomination of desolation. So this first three and a half years, many, many Israel, Israelites, millions of them all over the world will believe that their Savior has come, having missed Jesus completely, of course. And then what happens at the midpoint is, is, uh, is craziness. This is where the 666 economic uh, campaign begins, and everyone who will not worship the beast or the image of the beast, the Antichrist, uh, is slaughtered, is beheaded. Um, and there's three and a half years of literally hell come to earth uh, uh, that finishes the seven years of tribulation. And what we went through was during this time especially, during this time, Israel, many, many of them will die. Many of them uh, uh, tragically will probably take the mark of the beast, but many of them will be slaughtered. But when it finally comes down to the very end, all Israel will be saved. The remnant that is left will be saved uh, as they look on the one, Zechariah 12, as they look on the one whom they pierced and mourn and repent, uh, and they are saved uh, at that point. So now we're in a position to answer those who throughout the ages have wondered what the purpose of the tribulation is. Why does God have a plan for Daniel's 70th group of seven years, his 70th heptad, 70th seven? We spent much time on that, as you know, early in the Thursology series. But why does God have a plan for this 70th seven at the end of time? What could possibly be the purpose of such pain and suffering and horrific cataclysms on the earth? We can see now that our study of Israel in the end times has given us a great foundation to understand the two main purposes of the tribulation. Here's your blanks. Purpose number one, for God to give everyone on earth one more chance to accept his saving grace. And when we study the book of Revelation in detail, we will find a huge amount, a lot is in there, uh, especially when it comes to chapters 11 through 15, 16, when you get into the, the uh, great tribulation, the second half, um, much more. But for God to give everyone on earth one more chance to accept his saving grace before the end when Christ comes. And then purpose number two, for God to refine his elect people. Purpose number two, for God to refine his elect people in order to keep his promise to save all Israel. Remember, by the time, at the end, every one of those who are left, who have not been slaughtered, will be saved. And this purpose is explained and affirmed perfectly in Zechariah chapter th uh, 13. Look at the, it's in your text there. I will come, it will come about that all in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts of it will be cut off and perish, but one third will be left in it. Here's the remnant concept. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, the fire being that horrible great tribulation, of course, refining them and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people 
and they will say, the Lord is my God. That's right. God chose Israel, and he's going to save the entire remnant who are left at the end of time. And tonight, we turn to the issue of the chosenness, the chosenness, if that's a word, of Israel. As we talked about in lessons 38 and 39, God elected Israel for his special purpose. They were supposed to receive his saving grace and then take that grace to the rest of the world to help God save the unelect people, if you will, to save the unelect people of the earth. That was all the way back. Look at the first paragraph, the first two paragraphs of chapter 12 of Genesis, the Abrahamic covenant. You see, the reason he blessed Abraham was so through him, the, he could, the entire world, all the families of the earth could be, could be blessed, could be saved. Um, and uh, so uh, in those two sessions, we didn't deal with one incredibly important issue that be, should be taught anytime you deal with the topic of the biblical doctrine of election. So we'll deal with this issue in tonight's application. And you can see tonight's basically going to be all application of this. Uh, here's your application. Write it in. I'll read it twice. If you've been chosen, if you've been chosen, beware of the ever-present tendency to develop bad attitudes toward others who receive God's grace. If you've been chosen, beware of the ever-present tendency to develop atti bad attitudes toward others who receive God's grace. The history of Israel illustrates this point repeatedly. Zechariah prophesied in the 6th century B.C. You can turn to Zechariah if you want to. By the way, the easy way to find Zechariah is go to the first gospel, Matthew, and turn to the, to the left, just two small books, because Zechariah and Malachi are the last two uh, books of the Bible. Um, uh, it was after they had returned here in the 6th century B.C., had returned from the Babylonian exile, and they had successfully rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. Let's pick up the story as God has brought them home from Babylon. He's now declaring his special relationship with Zion, which really is, is Jerusalem and the Jewish people. That's what is meant in the Old Testament by the term Zion, Jerusalem and, and the Jewish people. And, and let's look at what he says. Look at verse 12 in Zechariah chapter 2. And the Lord will possess Judah as his portion of the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Notice that word. That's what the Hebrew word says. He will again choose Jerusalem. God chose the Israelites as his special people, and this doctrine isn't subtle in Scripture. In fact, the word is full of affirmations of this truth. And earlier in this chapter, it describes this special relationship. Look back at verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after Glory he has sent me against the nations which plunder you, talking to Israel now, to the Jewish people, uh, has sent me against the nations which plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. And this gives us a key concept. Write it in. Israel is the apple of God's eye. That's, of course, an, an ancient phrase meaning the absolute most special thing or person, or personalities, or family, or group of people, the apple of God's eye. And now God declares something amazing. Look at verse 10. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. This is a remarkable statement. God actually plans to live among 
the Jewish remnant at the end, when the day, at the day capital D, comes. Uh, but now, God shows his purpose for choosing Israel. And that's why I have moved around these verses right now, so we see this now that we have the setup. Look at verse 11, God's purpose for choosing Israel. Look at verse 11. And many nations will join themselves to the Lord. Remarkable. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Look at this consistent biblical precept right in your blanks. God chose and saved Israel. Sorry about the misspelling there. God chose and saved Israel so that he could use them to save, you ready? So that he could use them to save everyone else. It's right there in the text. Look at this. Verse 11, and many nations will join themselves after he's affirmed, I've chosen you. You're my special people. You're the apple of my eye. Why? And many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Listen, God chooses the elect to use them to save the unelect. This precept is lost on nearly everyone who focuses on the biblical doctrine of election nowadays. Election isn't about me. Election isn't about a personal position. It's about God's purpose for everyone else. Got that? The reason he chooses me, the reason he chooses you, is because he's thinking about saving everyone else. The nations, I will say, they are mine. And they will say, he is ours. <clears throat> so what we have here is that God, in fact, does elect people. He does choose people. But here's the big problem. You may remember this from Thursology 39. As soon as God shows someone grace and saves them from their sin and chooses them to be his people, there's an immediate tendency to think that the reason he chose them is because they're special. But it wasn't just the Israelites who were at risk for this. Scripture reveals that this risk is there among everyone who receives God's mercy. And so I'd like us to look now how this problem shows up in the attitudes of believers even today. So here we go. Bad attitude number one. Here's your blanks. The most faithful follower of Christ may feel the most deserving of receiving God's rewards. Let me say that again. Bad attitude number one. The most faithful follower of Christ may feel the most deserving of receiving God's rewards rewards. So turn to the right two books, to the first gospel, Matthew chapter 20, Matthew chapter 20. And let's start with verse 1. Matthew 20, starting with verse 1. For the kingdom of God, this is a pretty familiar parable, will be like the landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for the vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into the, his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour, and so that would have been 9 a.m. now, and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you too go into the vineyard, and whatever right, uh, is right I will give you. And so they went. Again, he went out in the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, 
he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why have you been standing there idle all day long? And they said to him, Because no one hired us. And he said, You two go into the vineyard. And when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. And when he, those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. And those who were hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. And they also received each one a denarius. And when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. Listen to the whining. But he answered and said to them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. But I, if I wish to give the last man the same as you, is it not lawful for me to do as I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? Thus, the last will be first and the first last. This parable is a fascinating study as it's gone through the ages in Christian sociology. God's incredible mercy is so counterintuitive that mature believers may often find themselves looking at the 11th hour convert and wondering about seven things. I've been working all my life here, and this guy gets in right at the end. So notice, here are the questions of the all-day workers. They come really right out of the story in the text. Ready? Here's your blank. All-day worker question number one. Is the 11th hour convert's faith really authentic? There they are, the all-day worker saying, is the 11th hour convert's faith really authentic? See, the all-day worker may ask, could their conversion be real? What about death row conversions? Don't some people have conversions that seem to be awfully convenient? The way we can end up thinking is right. At the end, after going their own way their whole life, they get in just like those who've worked for a lifetime. It's easy to question the authenticity of a late-hour conversion. After all, maybe they're just picking up a bit of fire insurance just in case there really is a God before they die. But don't forget, the potential for a falsified faith can be true for anyone's conversion. Let me say that again. The potential for a falsified faith can be true of anyone's conversion. In fact, you may be familiar with Matthew chapter 7. It teaches that many people will stand at the judgment and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do a whole list of things, all these things in your name? And Jesus will say, the king, I never knew you. So false confessions of faith aren't the exclusive purview of 11th hour believers. There will be lots of people who went to church and did acts of mercy and compassion, may have con con congratulated themselves for acting justly and being concerned about justice, and were baptized and who took communion for many years, and many of these will end up having their charade of fake faith exposed at the end, just like the Lord Lord group. And this leads to the next question that the vineyard parable brings up. All day worker question number two, here's your blanks. Shouldn't those who work harder and longer 
get more? Shouldn't those who work harder and longer get more? This question betrays an incredible misunderstanding of what eternal life is. Think about the metaphorical, the parabolic nature of this and what it means. What does one denarius mean here? It doesn't sound like much, but in the parable it actually represents the incredible reward of spending eternity with Christ. Paul said it as succinctly as it may be said. To be absent from the body is to be with the Lord. I, I can hardly wait to get rid of this thing, says Paul, because I want to be with, I want to be in the presence of the Lord. The reward is being with Jesus forever. That's the denarius. And it's impossible to improve on this. In this parable, one denarius, denarius can't possibly be increased. You can't have eternal life times two because eternal life is forever. There's nothing greater than living with Christ for eternity. That's the incredible payment. That's the unimprovable reward. We get to be in the con continuous, perfect, flawless, uninterrupted relationship with Jesus forever. That is the denarius, the reward. Stop for a moment and think. Do we really think that the 11th hour convert really should get less eternal life? Should they have to take, say, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday off from being with Jesus in heaven? Do we really think there should be a place in paradise for all the latecomers to go stand in the corner while the all-day workers get to be with Jesus in his presence continuously? How ridiculous is that? Now, I'm not negating the crowns and the rewards that will be received in different measure at the judgment seat of Christ. Oh, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and he will pass out the rewards, and there will be differences. There will be variation. It's not everybody gets a participation award there. This is where Jesus will reward faithfulness according to how we responded to his call to serve him with our lives. What the parable of the vineyard is clearly talking about is the reward of eternal life. It's shared in equal measure by all who call on the name of the Lord and truly follow him. Isn't the gospel incredible? There is no other faith, book, thought, ideology, philosophy, or religion like this. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And they'll be saved even if they repent with their very last breath. What an amazing Savior. And now comes bad attitude number two. Here's your blank. The all-day workers grumbled because they thought they deserved more since they had worked more. Let me say that again. The all-day workers grumbled because they thought they deserved more since they had worked more. Now, this bad attitude sounds like number one, but it's not the same. Let me explain. Look when the, back, back at verse 10. You're in chapter 20 of Matthew, verse 10. And when those who were hired first uh, came, they thought that they would receive more, and they, were, uh, they also received each one denarius. And when, this, when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner. And listen to verse 12. It's very telling, saying, these last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal 
to us. Isn't that remarkable? You made them equal to us who have, you ready? Serious whining. Who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. This is a huge risk for people who've walked with Christ for a long time. And it gives us the vineyard warning. Here's your blanks. The vineyard warning. This attitude about 11th hour converts shows that we actually believe that there's saving merit in working for God. We bore the heat of the day. We did all the really hard work. We really, really put it. It shows that we believe there's merit in working for God. Saving merit. Now, we wouldn't actually say it like this, but clearly, this is what was going on in the parable. The laborers who worked all day believed that, that God owed them more while the other laborers deserved less. And this clearly means that they didn't understand grace. They understood salvation as coming from their works. This was religion. This was not the gospel. They were doing a transaction with God. If I obey you, you save me. But here's what they missed. If working for a reward is the basis for this parable, if they want, and if they want to get credit for what they deserve, listen church, if they want to get credit for what they deserve, then they also have to ask whether they owe anything as well. And here's where the scales get lopsided really fast. You ready for the good-bad scales, if that's the way it's going to be? Here's the fact about the balance in the workers' accounts, right? The credit in their accounts, the righteousness, the good credits in their account, if you will. Here's the facts. Here's the blanks. If they deserve a denarius, then they owe an infinite amount. Think about it. This is true of all of us. If they deserve a denarius, then they owe an infinite amount. And here's the risk. Many of us who have lived most of our lives following Christ have a tendency to feel like we deserve something for being the good kid. How come rascals can show up late after we've done all the work and just waltz into the promised land? Why do they get the same eternal life that we get? It just isn't fair. Well, it turns out that there was a guy just like this in the scriptures. You'll probably be familiar with him. But before we go into the next bad attitude, I want to take a moment to point out a big risk on the opposite side of what we just talked about. There are a lot of people who've been given the light of the gospel and have heard of God's amazing grace and realize that the person who repents and turns to God at the very end of their life will still receive the full reward of salvation. They get it. That's the gospel. Lots of people understand that. But here's where they can go wrong. They may think that this parable gives them a way to game the system and to manipulate God's mercy. So they say, this is great. I don't have to obey yet. I can just wait till later in life, after I've enjoyed living the way I want to live. And then, when I get older, I'll come back to the, in the 11th hour and bingo, I'll be in, I'll be saved. And the cool thing is, I get the same reward of eternal life as those who obeyed God all their life. 
What a great scam. What a great deal. Well, if anyone who's watching this message is thinking like this, let me give you a warning to the 11th hour procrastinator. Here's your blanks. A warning to the 11th hour procrastinator. Only a fool assumes that they'll always have enough time to change their mind. Only a fool assumes that they'll always have enough time to change their mind. You see, some people have a strong tendency to hear the light of the word, but then they, they uh, uh, put off the immediate response. And what happens? They delay, they wait, and they actually have the audacity to believe that God won't ever say it's too late. They'll always be able to make it in under the wire. And when they do this, they're only deceiving themselves. Many people live as if they'll be able to return to the Lord on their own terms, in their own time, whenever they want. You may know people like that. You may be a person like that. But there's a huge problem with this. Here's your blanks. There's a huge problem with this. The human heart becomes less and less responsive to truth. The human heart becomes less and less responsive to truth when the truth is repeatedly rejected. When it comes to repentance, procrastination is treacherous. It's a treacherous presumption upon God's grace, and it is spiritually deadly. That 11th hour, when you think you'll finally slide in, your heart will have become hard, and you won't be able to hear the call anymore. So pay attention. It's a huge error to assume that you'll always have time to come back to the opportunity that God is giving you today. In fact, right now. It's a huge error to say, I'll repent and obey someday. I'm just not ready quite yet. Friends, only a fool of the highest order assumes that there will always be another chance to obey. The biblical concept is clear. You probably have heard it from multiple places, Old and New Testament, today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. If God is speaking to you about something in your life, don't wait till tomorrow. Don't even wait till the end of this session. Right now, in this moment, repent and turn to the Lord. And let me give you a warning. Don't assume that the chance will come again. Don't assume that you can control when the 11th hour will be in your life. Don't assume that you actually have a watch. My practice of emergency medicine has been in the busiest trauma center between Los Angeles and Dallas for a whole career. You have no idea how many people I have pronounced dead who 15 minutes before were more alive than me. And boom, it's over. Listen again to the words warning today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Bad attitude number three. Here's your blanks. When the father treats really bad sinners graciously, <laughs> when the father treats really bad sinners graciously, the faithful are at risk for feeling mistreated. Turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. So you're in Matthew. Just go past Mark to Luke, Luke chapter 15, starting with verse 11. It's the, I think, third paragraph, fourth, third or fourth paragraph. Verse 11, 
And he said, a certain man had two, and, and he said, a certain man had two sons. You'll be probably familiar with this parable as well. And the youngest of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided the wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant land. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Skip down to verse 20, because now his entire life has fallen apart. He has squandered all of his wealth. It's gone. And now here he is eating the food of swine. And he's Jewish. Look at verse 20. And he got up and came to his father. After literally the word says, he came to his senses. He got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have, you can tell he had rehearsed this apology, right? To be, uh, I, I can't be your son, but at least can I work here? At least I can eat. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against you and heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring out the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. Verse 24, for the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. And he was lost and he's now been found. And they began to be merry. Now the older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what things might be. And he said to him, your brother has come, your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began entreating him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you. I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But when his son, this son of yours, notice he didn't even call him his brother. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with harlots, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, my child, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to be merry and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. What was lost has been found. Look again at a key set of phrases. Verse 27. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he was rece has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry. I've put here in your notes, the word angry here in the Greek is the word ergidzo. And it means, here's your blank, it means enraged. So most of the translators haven't gone all the way. They've understated the enormity of the intensity of this anger. It's like homicidal anger. He is enraged. And if the older brother had taken a big step back, he would have found joy in both of these things. First, he would have found joy in the fact that he had been spared his younger brother's suffering because he had remained in the father's house with all of its blessings and benefits. And if he'd have had that attitude, he could have rejoiced with his father that the lost one had come back. But look at the issues that emerge from the elder brother's response. Number one, here's your blank. The elder brother felt that his obedience 
made him more deserving of his father's blessings. Ooh, there it is. And the personal application for those of us who have followed the Lord for years is easy to see. If we've followed the rules for a long time, we can easily think we're more deserving of God's grace than those who have wandered far from God. But this entire thought process reveals a profound misunderstanding of God's grace. It's a key concept. Here's your blank. Write it in. By definition, by definition, grace is undeserved. By definition, grace is undeserved. If it's deserved, it's not grace. If it's deserved, it's not mercy. It's earning. It's religion. It's not the gospel. Number two, the second issue that emerges from the elder brother's response. Ready? Deep down inside, it might be tempting to want others to get what's coming to them. Now, as soon as I say this, let me point out how much we don't want to get what's coming to us. What we want for ourselves is mercy and grace. This parable makes you wonder what would have happened if the elder brother had found the prodigal before the father did. Perhaps in his rage, he would have killed him rather than welcoming him home. Now notice, although the text says that the elder brother followed all the rules, it's obvious that his heart wasn't right. And so, both the prodigal, notice this, both the prodigal and the faithful son had major issues of rebellion in their heart. The younger son was a rebel, but he acknowledged it and repented of it. But guess what? The elder brother was also a rebel, but he didn't repent. He excused his own sin because he was a rule-following, law-abiding rebel. In fact, the parable has been misnamed. Remember, the name of the parable isn't in the text. It's not biblical. It's what, it's what uh, people who produce Bibles put in there to help us know what's in a, a particular place. But it has been misnamed. So the real point of the story here, here's your blanks. A, a much better title is, you ready? The parable of the repentant wayward son. The parable of the repentant wayward son and the unrepentant self-righteous son. A better title. Both of them were lost. Number three, the third issue that emerges from the elder brother's response. The elder brother, here's your blanks, the elder brother failed to recognize the blessings he had that the prodigal had missed. The list of what the prodigal missed is nearly endless. Think about while he was out, away from the father. How indelible a loss he had suffered when a person lives their life their own way. The prodigal passed up many opportunities to be redemptive, to use his position and his possessions for the good of others, to help his community flourish. It clearly, there was a rich family. He missed the opportunity to help so many and to bring others into fellowship. And now let's link this back to the 11th hour converts, the other parable that we started with. They usually have two emotions. First, 11th hour converts are incredibly grateful for God's grace that saved them after living for themselves for so long. And second, they're usually incredibly sorry for their wasted years. If you've talked to 11th hour converts, they're usually really sorry 
for the wasted years. And let me illustrate this. Not long ago, I got to spend some time with a high school friend who has returned to the Lord. And despite God's gift of him growing up with a godly family in a great church, he decided to go his own way for decades. And now, after two ugly divorces and disasters in the lives of his children, he finally returned to serving the Lord and uh, making a difference in the kingdom. However, you should hear him tell of his grief over the fact that he can never get back the years that he spent following his own ways and advancing the cause of the enemy. Let me say that again. He can never get back the years that he spent following his own ways and advancing the cause of the enemy. He realizes how much pain and suffering he's experienced and that he's caused in others. You see, God's grace does a lot of things, but not even God's grace, not even God, changes the past. And this gives us a key concept. Here's your blank. Write it in. God can redeem the past. Oh, he can redeem the past, any past. He can redeem the past, but he doesn't change it. And so, if you're running from God, if you're going your own way, don't underestimate the price that you'll pay in the future, even if you repent and return to the Lord. When you do that, you'll face the reality of what you've wasted and the opportunities that you've squandered, the missed opportunities to make this world a better place, to, to use your time and resources in advancing your own selfish plans is how you did it, rather than changing the destiny of those who need to know Jesus around you. If this is where you are right now, repent. Come back to Jesus and redeem the priceless time that he's given you in the future to build his kingdom. Number four, the fourth issue that emerges from the elder brother's response. The elder brother didn't recognize the incredible value of simply living with his father. Think about this. For the elder brother, it wasn't enough to, enough to just have a beautiful, uninterrupted, ongoing relationship with his father. This is a great example to many of us. Often we don't recognize what we have in Jesus until we lose it. In fact, this is the fundamental story of the Garden of Eden. They were walking with the Creator in the cool of the day, having unbroken fellowship with Him in the midst of the perfect world that He had made. And yet, and yet, it wasn't enough for them. They had to have more. They had to have their own way. Now notice this. The lives of both the elder brother and the younger brother express what happened at the fall. They both express what happened at the fall, but they expressed it in different ways. What the elder brother had was the wonderful un uninterrupted presence of his father. But guess what? It wasn't enough. And on the other side, how immense was the loss of the prodigal who spent all of that time away from his father's joy in a world that had nothing of true value to offer him. So what about us? What about you and me? Is it not enough just to have the beautiful, uninterrupted, ongoing relationship with our father? Is our greatest joy seeing the smile of our loving Lord or... Is that not enough? 
Do we have to have more? Do we have to have our own way to think we're really happy and really fulfilled? So let me ask you a question. Is God's presence, is God's presence being with the Father in the household, in fellowship, is God's presence your greatest joy? Could you really create a greater reward than simply having the privilege of serving the master in his house? Or do you have to have more? Do you have to have your own way? Number five, the fifth issue that emerges from the elder brother's response. In the end, the wayward son was in fellowship with the father and the righteous, the righteous son was out of fellowship. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. The parable is for two kinds of people. Here's your blank. Those who are lost in their sin and those who are lost in their goodness. Two kinds of people. Those who are lost in their sin and those who are lost in their goodness. This is made all the more poignant when you remember that Jesus was talking to the Pharisees the people he was talking to were the greatest rule followers, most religious people of all time. Now, to be sure, the loose living rebel was lost. But don't miss the remarkable twist at the end of the story. In the end, and think who he's speaking to, the perfect Pharisees. In the end, the bad son was saved and the righteous son was lost. If you've been in the church a long time, pay attention. This has enormous implications for us. And bad attitude number four. Bad attitude number four. The most obedient are at the highest risk for being ungrateful. The most obedient are at the highest risk for being ungrateful. So let's think again about the 11th hour convert parable. And how, now let's look at a fascinating parable to that passage. I don't know if, you know, you know if you've ever noticed this parallel, but turn with me now to Luke chapter 7. You're in Luke chapter 15, turn to Luke chapter 7, and look with me. This is a parallel to the 11th hour, to the vineyard, to the 11th hour convert concept. And look with me at verse 36 of chapter 7. Verse 36, it's a new paragraph there of Luke chapter 7. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. So Jesus is going into a Pharisee's house for dinner. And he entered the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. And behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. Isn't it interesting that that's, the, that's, the, that's her uh, title in essence. That's her, we don't even hear her name. Um, in fact, the, the, the Greek literally says an immoral woman, right? So there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that she was reclin he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of, his, of her head <coughs> and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, and he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. 
Verse 40, and Jesus answered and said to him, isn't that interesting? If he was a prophet, must have freaked him out. Because notice it says he thought this to himself. He didn't say this. He thought it to himself. And then Jesus, boom, right back at him. Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, 500, and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to the woman, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Now let's notice something right up front. The Pharisee had enormous sin. He had enormous sin in his life as well. It was just a different kind of sin. It was the great sin. It was the sin of spiritual pride. And he was in great need of forgiveness as well. But he didn't recognize his need. What a commentary on those who think that they've done so much for God. As I was studying for this lesson, I find myself asking, Dan, are you ready? Excuse me. Dan, are you really grateful for the incredible mercy that you've been shown? Or, since you've walked with the Lord for so long, does your attitude show that you actually feel that you've attained some worthiness of the grace that you've received? Do I actually have the audacity to think that I'm made of better stock than others or more deserving of salvation than others? And does this make me less grateful for the blood of Christ than those who have wandered far from him? So here's the great risk in the parable of the perfume. Here's your blank. The great risk in the parable of the perfume. Mature believers are at greater risk for ungratefulness than the new convert who has wandered far from God and wallowed in the ways of the world. Let me say that again. This is the great risk of, uh, in the parable of the perfume. Mature believers are at greater risk for ungratefulness than the new convert who has wandered far from God and wallowed in the ways of the world. Notice the paradox. Although the babe in Christ may be more prone to errors in judgment, and they may be more prone to errors in theology, maybe even in errors of belief, and they may have a big lack of knowledge of the truth. Even though all of that is true, the parable warns us that the mature believers are at greater risk of forgetting just how much grace it took to save us and how much grace it will take for us to stand before the judgment seat of God. Oh my, help us, Lord. This parable warns us of a potential disaster. The scary thing is, the text actually says that the woman who'd been so desperately lost in her sin actually 
loved Jesus more. And what is the great commandment? To love the Lord your God. She loved him more, despite all of her sin and wickedness. So here's the warning. Will we have to explain to our Savior, who had to die for every one of our sins, will we have to explain to him why it was that we thought that we were more deserving than others? Have we forgotten that if we've broken even the smallest letter of the law, we're guilty of all of the law? As we close... I want us to notice something from the most famous hymn of the church that was ever written. Probably by far the most famous hymn in the history of the church. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Think about this. This hymn isn't just for the really bad converts. It's for every convert, bad and good, new and old. Everyone is a wretch in desperate need of grace. In fact, if we're not, then Jesus has no gospel for us because Jesus only came to save one kind of person, sinners. If we're good, we don't need a savior. We don't need Jesus. So Jesus has no gospel for good people, only for wretches And then his amazing grace will cover it no matter how bad we are. So I end with some questions. If we really understand how high a price God paid for our salvation, will it make us more humble when we think about what others deserve? And if we really understand how costly our sin is to Christ, will it impact our attitude toward obeying his word? And if we really understand what it took to save us from our sins, do you think we'll be really grateful? And if we really understand that we've been bought with a price, that we aren't our own, will we offer every part of our life to be used by him for his purposes? Will we surrender all if we really understand how much we've been forgiven? Let me ask you, Are you so grateful for what God has done for you that your entire life is consumed by pleasing him? Let's pray. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. If we really mean these words, How can we do anything but offer our entire life to you, Lord? And will it impact our attitudes toward the lost? Will it impact how much grace we're willing to give to others? Will it change our minds about pouring out blessings on undeserving people? Because we understand that by definition, grace is undeserved. Will it make us less judgmental? And will it make us the kind of people who sinners want to be around? Because they find so much love and they find us so full of grace and so full of mercy that they just have to know what makes us different. If we come to understand how much we've been forgiven, will those people look at us and say, I have to have what they have. Oh God, may you Rend our hearts 
May we truly repent of all sin from the most wicked to the most prideful, righteous one. And everywhere in between, may we come to understand your awesome grace. And may we take your saving grace to all of those out there who don't look chosen, but whom you want to save. Do so in us, Lord. Amen.